Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. I love a good breakfast. My wife and I, Corey, will often choose for our uh, date meals to go for breakfast rather than dinner. Corey grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I was there for about 18 years, and Madison has a ton of great breakfast spots. Our favorite was a restaurant called La Brioche. Brioche is a uh, French pastry, and I think a picture will come up underneath the sign that says, true food, and that's what they endeavored to provide. It was a husband and wife that owned the restaurant, and the husband oversaw the food part of things, and it was like a French cuisine and local and organic food, excellent fare. And then the wife did the ambiance, really shooting for the feng shui. And every area uh, of the restaurant had a different mood, and she would choose different colors and fabrics and artwork to create a certain mood. You would walk in and there would be a grand piano in the, pl- in, in the corner and uh, a classical piano player or a jazz piano player would, would often be playing. So we would just really look forward to our times there. We'd walk in, there's always a line and they had incredible bakery. So we put our name in and walk up and order a bunch of bakery and then order coffee. And they had uh, endless refills of uh, freshly roasted artisan coffee. So we'd get our first cup of coffee and start eating French pastries and, and, and wait for our table. Then we'd get our table, we'd sit down and we'd order the main course. And my favorite was, a, was a, a red pepper, a roasted red pepper omelet and it was filled with uh, Swiss cheese and avocado and romesco sauce. It was, it was just so good. And then they would just keep coming by, filling your cup of coffee and you're listening to the piano. We would just stay there for hours and just get lost in conversations. One of those places and spaces that we uh, never wanted to leave and re-enter the real world. We actually, at that restaurant, that was the place that we made our decision after a lot of prayer and discernment to choose to come to New Hope and to Portland. So it's a, it's a sacred place for us. Uh, tons of great breakfast places in Portland, as you well know. Our, our favorite is called Screen Door. You're probably familiar with it. We're not the only ones that like it because there's like always an hour Wait, but the the dish that I get there is, is the the banana Foster's French toast. It will change your life, and this is how they describe it: it's Pearl Bakery brioche, brioche again, soaked in rich vanilla custard, griddled and topped with rum flame bananas, cinnamon, and whipped cream. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's incredible. Anybody getting hungry? It's been argued that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and I think Jesus knew that. And we'll see that play out in our story today. We're the ninth week in our series called Encountering Jesus, a study of the Gospel of John, where John is presenting image after image of Jesus so that we would know Jesus more and trust Jesus more and find life in Jesus' name. Today we're going to look at the image of Jesus as the host. So let me say a brief prayer for us as we get into the scriptures today. Father, we just uh, 
Thank you for uh, our church that's meeting online today and that can be with us in spirit, and we do trust your spirit is with us. And we pray that uh, you would allow us not to be distracted about things that happened before or coming up, that we'd be completely present today with one another and with you. We pray your word would come alive uh, in our hearts and that as we encounter your word and we encounter your son Jesus today, we'd be changed uh, into his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little bit of context uh, today before uh, we have our scripture reading. The context is uh, John 21, so you can, if you, you want to go ahead and turn to that passage, you can. It seems like John's gospel should sit end at chapter 20, which is the resurrection, Woohoo! And then we have John 21, almost like it's an add-on or an epilogue, but it is a beautiful, beautiful chapter, one of my favorite in all of Scripture. And as we encounter it, we, we need to have the context of the emotional context, that the disciples who are mostly teenagers, it has been a really emotionally daunting uh, stretch of time for them. Uh, they go back to uh, Palm Sunday, and they ride in, and everybody's hailing Jesus as king, and they're thinking, now's the time, he's king, and we're going to be at his right and left hand, and we're going to rule, and then in quick order, things begin to come apart. And they could never have imagined in their wildest dreams what would happen and Jesus hanging on a cross in, in just a few days, and they were devastated. And then the most remarkable thing happened. Jesus uh, is risen from the grave and appears to them. And it's, I have to imagine, it's a sense of bewilderment and wonder and what is happening, that they're exhausted emotionally. Jesus appears to them twice in Jerusalem. And then he tells them to head to Galilee, which was kind of up to the northern part of the country from Jerusalem and to hang out until he shows up there. So they head up there, and that's a lot of the disciples, at least seven of them, that was their home base. Uh, Bethsaida, this is probably around uh, the area that, that this story occurs. A map will come up to kind of orient you. Uh, that's Peter's hometown, and Jesus, we know, spent a considerable uh, time around that. A, a lot of the disciples were fishermen. Sea of Galilee was a prominent area of fishing. So a bunch of teenage boys hanging out, waiting, just like teenage boys today would get bored. And so what do they do? They do the thing that came most naturally to them since they had been doing almost since they were little, little kids, and that's go fishing. So they go to the garage and pull out the boats and dust off the boats, pull out the fishing nets, and they head out uh, for a night of fishing. And uh, Portia is going to read our scripture. Take it away. Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of John. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw a net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to hold the net in 
because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the full net of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There was fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Portia. Uh, so we have this story. Seven of the 11 disciples have, have, have headed to Galilee, and they, they went for a night of, of fishing. Five of them are named. You can look down in your text and see, and then two are unnamed. Probably Andrew and Philip, we presume that's who they were. So we have the, the seven uh, disciples, and they head out to the Sea of Galilee, prominent area of fishing, really excellent fishing. And it's kind of, they expected it to be like old times. And so they get in their fishing boats and they head out, except it wasn't like old times. They caught nada, which is exceptional if, if what we read about the Sea of Galilee back then was true. And it was relatively easy to catch some fish, especially for professional, experienced fishermen with the right gear and the right boats. There's a picture that will come up of a, of a fishing boat that was discovered in that same area, uh, 27 by 7 feet. This is likely what they fished with. They probably had multiple boats. And the way they fished back then is they would distance themselves, kind of parallel across from one another, and then drop what's called trammel nets that have weights on the bottom. And they would go all the way down to kind of create a wall. And so you have two walls, and the fish are trapped in between, and then you throw a third net out to kind of capture the fish that are trapped. And oftentimes, they're in more shallow water, so one or more fishermen would get out and be in the water collecting the fish. That's, that's kind of how it went back then. But they didn't have to do any of that because they're they catch nothing all night. It's it's really is exceptional. So then uh, about it's it's picture the scene. This is helpful to kind of just close our eyes and enter in. It's it's first light. Uh, the sky is getting slowly brighter, but it's you know it's kind of hazy. You can barely barely see. And probably they're about a hundred yards offshore. And then they see a figure walking, a solitary figure walking on the shore. And noise travels exceptionally well over water. So this solitary figure shouts out like, hey, have, how's the fishing? Have you caught anything? Which is like the worst possible question to ask a bunch of guys who've been fishing all night and they catch nothing. And of course, the reader, we, the readers know that this figure is Jesus. Uh, at this point in the story, the disciples don't know this. I picture Jesus asking this question and just kind of slapping his knee, laughing. He's trolling them and messing with them, poking the bear. That's what we call it in our house. I think Jesus had a, a very mischievous sense of humor. And so he's messing with them. He knows they've caught nothing, and he, he's kind of getting the, the riled up. And I think that it worked. So they, they, they kind of probably just ignored him and hoped this solitary figure 
uh, would go away. And then he calls out again, throw the net out on the right side of the boat. And they're like, who is this person? Why, why, why is he? Maybe he sees a school of fish. Maybe he sees something that we don't. And they're like, ah, let's try anything. We're exhausted. We're tired. And you, you know what happened. They threw the net out and massive catch. Someone, it's interesting, took time to count the fish. And they tell us, John tells us there's 153 fish. It was at that moment that John, the writer of the gospel, put the pieces together and <laughs> said, Deja vu. Three years ago, same boats, same area, really, really similar story. And so that at that moment when it clicks in John's mind and he recognizes that it's Jesus, he turns to Peter and says, it is the Lord. Now, this is an interesting moment for Peter because as we, as we understand the story, Peter probably hadn't seen Jesus very much at all, had acted with, interacted with him very little since the moment he had denied him. So Peter is likely cloaked in shame, and, and desperate for grace. Uh, so, but Peter, deja vu again, does the same thing he did <laughs> three years previously, tucks his fishing schmock into his belt and does a cannonball into the water and begins to swim like a madman for sure. That's what somebody desperate for redemption will do. So Peter's swimming like a madman. The rest of them take the boats in, pulling this massive haul of fish towards the shore and they get out and there's that mixture. I got to expect they feel the bewilderment. And we know that they didn't always recognize Jesus physically, but they usually recognized him through his actions. So they get up and they're excited to see him. And then there's this incredible scene, and I need you to step into it with all of your emotions with me because it is a scene of utter hospitality. I don't know if you've ever been cold and bone tired and, and weary and hungry all at the same time, and then you've come into a place of extravagant hospitality. It just does something to our spirits. I love to backpack. I'm a backpacker. So coming off the trail when you're soaked all oftentimes and weary and hungry, we usually have to set up camp and start a fire and fix dinner. I can't imagine how beautiful it would be to come into camp and have that all set up for me. So John gives us the details that were burning coals, which tells us Jesus had been there for a while. There were fish that were roasted and ready to go and bread that was prepared. Jesus may have even caught the fish himself. This tells us intentionality. And as I'm reading this text, I'm like, are you kidding me? Jesus had just hung on the cross for them. He had taken care of their sins and the sins of the world, and he continues to give. And John and Jesus he are painting for us this scene of incredible hospitality. And then once again, Jesus' sense of humor, he says, Peter, why don't you get some of those fish you caught? <laughs> He's trolling him again because Peter didn't actually catch them. Jesus, I mean, he did, but you know, Jesus provided the fish for him. And I could just see Peter shake and said, not knowing how to take Jesus, not knowing where they stood. And then they sit down around the fire, and then we have these verses that you heard earlier. Let me read them again because they're the heart of the passage. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. Note that they didn't recognize Jesus by his appearance. They recognized Jesus by his hospitality. We can make a strong case in the Gospel of John, as we've looked at, at nine of these images now, that concurrent through all the images is a more dominant idea that holds many of them together of Jesus as the life-giving host. 
I think if there's anything John wants us to get from all these images, it's that Jesus is the life-giving host. Really, an image we didn't discuss but comes very early on is Jesus as the bridegroom. That's how I would have preached it if we did that passage, and it's Jesus' first miracle. You may be familiar with the story. And Jesus has not launched his ministry yet. He's kind of under the radar, but he's getting ready. And his mother Mary invites Jesus to be her and one for a wedding. Jesus is like, ah, mom, a wedding. Really? I don't want to go. Come on, son. So he's a good son. Goes to the wedding as Mary's and one. It's a family wedding. They're connected. And then the horror of horror happens. They run out of wine, which in that culture would have brought a due amount of shame down upon the family. It was the responsibility of the bridegroom to provide enough wine for everyone to have a festive gathering for a couple days, and they ran out. I'm not sure what happened. We're not told. So Mary is connected to the family and wants to help them save face, literally, and so comes to her son. And Mary, by that point, has a mother knows her son well, knows who Jesus is, and says, come on, help them. It's not my time, mother. Come on, Jesus, this will be shame. We don't want this for them. And this shows the compassion of Jesus, that even though he had this plan, uh, he augmented the plan and changed it to care for these uh, friends and to care for his mother. So he, he, he gathers these big holders of, of water, containers of water, and asks the, the servants to fill them up and then you know prays the prayer and does the Jesus thing, and they're all transformed into wine. And I did the math. It would be the equivalent of 908 bottles of wine that Jesus created out of water. And this wasn't Trader Joe's two-buck chuck. I don't know if it's still two bucks. This was like super premium wine. So Jesus is stepping into this, this image of the bridegroom. It was the bridegroom's responsibility. Jesus is stepping in or the host, the life-giving host. So right from this first miracle, right from the beginning, John is introducing this. We see it again in an image we did cover, Jesus, the temple. They're selling, they're creating marketplace, they're keeping barriers between God and the, and, and the people. And Jesus would have none of it. Jesus clears them out and then he orients the people around himself and says, I am the temple now. He will be the host. He will be the place that we connect with a holy God. So again, that, that host imagery. We, we see it in Jesus the well, That's that, that conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well. Of course, he asked her for a drink, but then in short order, she is asking him for a drink of living water, and he is providing it for her. Once again, he is the life-giving host. We see this on crystal clear, full display in Jesus the bread, where Jesus stands before this crowd, that is equivalent to the size of a sold-out Moda Center. And he's acting as the potipharmilius, the head of the family at the Passover feast, and he's breaking the bread and provides bread to everyone and then says, I am the bread of life. He, he's stepping in once again to this image of the life-giving host. We see it in Jesus the Good Shepherd, the, the image that Denise uh, taught on. Jesus stepping into the imagery of Psalm 23, King David of the Good Shepherd, Jesus providing uh, green pastures and still waters. And that same psalm, if you'll remember, it goes on to talk about host images that God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And our cup, our coffee cup, I like to think of it, overflows. Continual. It's, it's an image of robust hospitality. We see this image of Jesus as a life-giving host in the vine. Jesus is literally the organic host. We have to be connected to him to produce 
fruit. We see uh, Jesus is the life-giving host in another image we didn't discuss, but Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus, literally the image of the servant. And Jesus providing that, uh, that was needed to have meals when your feet were dirty, and Jesus is hosting them. And then he sits them down at the Last Supper, and in, in that talk, he tells them that he's going ahead of them to prepare a home for them or a house for them. And then, of course, in this last image, in case we haven't gotten it thus far in all these images, John wants to be explicitly clear with us. And he gives us this poignant and beautiful image of Jesus opening up the breakfast table, inviting all of us to come of taste of God's goodness, pulling out a seat at the table of of God's goodness for all of us. Hospitality is really, and it makes sense that this is so connected to the image of Jesus, hospitality is at the heart of the gospel, the good news story that we're all a part of and that we're all invited into. In, in the book of Ephesians, and we'll be starting a series on the book of Ephesians called Resurrecting Church in two weeks. So stay tuned, we'll get more into this passage. But this is on full display in verse 19 of chapter 2. Let me read it for you. Uh, and, and, and there's a word uh, oikos in the Greek, and it means uh, essentially uh, house. It's the Greek word for house. And so I, I put some Greek words that are highlighted to show you how often in this short passage Paul is interacting with this idea of oikos or house. It'll make sense in a second. So listen to what Paul says. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God the Spirit. So the wordplay, Paul is, I mean, if if you're reading this in the Greek, you're like, okay, I get it, Paul. Because look at how often he's using that key Greek word oikos, which is house, in different variations. Uh, He uses it as part of the word for aliens and household and built upon and structure and built into and dwelling place. So Paul's essentially reminding us that myself and all all of us were strangers and aliens or sojourners, your text might say. Now, because of the work of Jesus, the life-giving host, we are invited into God's household. The gospel is essentially telling us, it's, it's God telling us, my house is your house. And in the first century Roman world, to be a member of a Roman household meant that you had the, the protection, the identity, the security, the sense of belonging, of being part of that household the hospitality work of the gospel when Jesus is life-giving host is inviting all of us who are strangers and aliens into God's house to have his identity, to have his protection, to have his security, to have his sense of belonging. Jesus is a life-giving host, and Jesus is inviting us into the household of God to have a seat at God's table of goodness. So it, it figures that those of us who look to Jesus for life and follow Jesus, which is what our community at New Hope is endeavoring to do, that we should in turn, as we follow Jesus, be offering life-giving hospitality to others. Let's come back to our story in John 21. This is the part of the story you may well know best, and we're not going to really, I'm not going to really get into the uh, 
the, the minutia of the redemptive acts that Jesus is doing. That's a whole nother sermon, but I want to hone you in on the final piece of what Jesus uh, says to Peter. So Peter denied Jesus. They haven't really had the conversation. They're sitting around this breakfast table, if you will, and here's the conversation. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then here it is, Jesus said, feed my sheep. So picture the scene. They're all just having this incredible breakfast and the camera pans to Jesus. Can you imagine the psyche of, of Peter and, and the redemptive acts going in? And we're not going to go into that today. But what Jesus does is, is he restores Peter to, Peter will be essentially the head of this church movement that, that will be launching. He commands Peter as he's restored to the leadership to go and feed his sheep. He's, he's declaring Peter to be an emissary of hospitality. He's asking Peter to now, as he follows him, to do as Jesus did, to do as Jesus was displaying right in front of them for Peter to be a life-giving host. When you think of hospitality in, in our context, um, there's hospitality that we, we all participate in and we, we provide to a certain degree, but largely in our culture, uh, hospitality has become professional. It's, it's a whole industry. You can actually go to college and get your degree in hospitality. Hospitality has been outsourced. In the first century, everything depended on hospitality. You, you had to depend on the hospitality of a neighbor for places to stay and for food oftentimes, and it knitted a society together in interdependence, but not now. It's, it's, a, it's a paid profession. Well, I think there's an incredible opportunity for those of us who follow Jesus in, in this growing divisive world and this world that's so unkind oftentimes to once again mirror the ministry of Jesus' life-giving host and become people of hospitality, offering people a seat at God's table of goodness. Uh, Henry Nouwen says, if there is any concept, concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. Ethicist uh, Philip Haley spent much of his life studying the human capacity for evil and good. He's kind of an expert in that area. And he came to this understanding that the opposite of cruelty, are you ready for it? The opposite of cruelty is hospitality. And in a world, I don't know about your experience, you look, spend five minutes on social media, just look around it. It's just an increasingly cruel world. It's an increasingly divisive world. And this is an opportunity for those of us who follow the life-giving host to come in and offer what is the opposite of cruelty, and that's hospitality, offering people a seat at the table of God's goodness. I've long defined hospitality as welcoming others into life-giving space, welcoming others into life-giving space. That could be a smile, that could be a gesture, that could be a note or a text or a phone call or a conversation some way in which we invite another person into life-giving space. It could definitely be a meal, and I think that's the, one of the most effective ways we can show hospitality. We need to understand that, that our call to follow Jesus and be life-giving host to other and offer hospitality to other has no limits. 
And I, I want you to hear this because it's a, it's a sticking point for a lot of followers of Jesus in modern context. The, uh, the, the word uh, hospitality in the Greek is made up of two smaller words, and it's a, the word for stranger, xenos, and, and then the word for love. And it means, hospitality in the Greek means stranger love, stranger love. There's another word that we probably know called xenophobia, which is stranger fear. And it deeply saddens me that oftentimes followers of Jesus in our modern context are known more for their stranger fear, their xenophobia, than their stranger love. And I think it's an opportunity for us to reorient ourselves around really the last teaching of Jesus, providing breakfast after the cross for those who would become leaders in the church, showing them and representing to them the life that he's calling them to, a life of hospitality. So challenge for you this week to be thinking through uh, who might you show hospitality to, and there's no limits. In fact, it, it, it figures biblically that it might be a stranger. Try that on for size. Or this is even crazier, an enemy, somebody that you see the world differently than. As followers of Jesus, we're called to offer them hospitality. Remember, this was modeled by Jesus, that Jesus after offered extravagant hospitality to Judas, washed his feet, prepared the Passover feast for him, knowing full well what he'd do. Jesus offered extravagant hospitality to Peter at that same meal, knowing and telling Peter what he was going to do, deny him three times. Talk about hurtful. And then again providing extravagant hospitality to Peter to set him straight and to restore his broken heart and to set him on mission to be a man and to create a church of hospitality. So what does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? Probably something we might be uncomfortable with. But my challenge to you this week is just do one act of hospitality. One, one act that you're offering life-giving space to another human. Maybe another human you don't know. Maybe another human you see the world totally different than. Give it a go. And if you're really bold, host them for a meal. And maybe you don't feel comfortable yet doing that in your home or even out, out in, in the world, and that's okay. Maybe you have to wait for that, but some of you might be ready for that. That is probably the most uh, vulnerable step of hospitality you can take. But to eat another meal with a person creates such connectedness and such understanding, and it gives us as followers of Jesus an opportunity to love on people in ways they can't even measure it internally. It's on my bucket list to visit the, the Church of St. Peter's Primacy. I'm uh, planning to go to, to the Holy Land, Lord willing, in March with my wife as, as part of the, the, the doctorate program I'm involved in. Super excited for that, never been, and it's, and it's been on my bucket list for a long time. But one of the things I certainly want to do is, if we get the opportunity, is to go to, to, to the Church of St. Peter's Primacy, which is the site that they believe that this breakfast happened. And if you go there, uh, you can go towards the shore. It's on the Sea of Galilee, and you'll find a statue that'll, that'll come up uh, depicting that moment of Jesus kind of restoring and at the same time commissioning Peter to a life of hospitality, to being a life-giving host because he follows the one who is the life-giving host. There's also a, uh, a little chapel called, called the Mensa Christa, and in that chapel is, they think, it's believed to be, tradition holds, the flat rock on which Jesus served the meal, the fish that awaited them and the bread. And we, we don't know for sure, but it's what tradition holds. It's a beautiful idea. It's, it's the very place 
that, that Jesus invited these men as strangers into the household of God. It's the very place that Jesus, after the cross, showed them extravagant hospitality. That Jesus, the life-giving host, pulls out a seat at the table of God's goodness and invites them to sit down. It's the very place that Jesus modeled for them what it would look like to follow him and what it would look like to build out a church of radical hospitality. Uh, it's the heart of the gospel. Uh, I told you that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. Let me pray. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your power at display in this story. Um, I'll, I'll confess, Father, that this story presses me. Uh, it's, it's, it is vulnerable. It is uncomfortable to step out and host another person and to show them a hospitality and to bend towards them and not away from them and to be generous. And yet, how can we not? How can we not? This is, this is such a clear theme in, in the life of Jesus, the one that we're called to model our lives after. It's such a key theme, the one who is the head of our church. And God, we're struggling as a church. I just kind of admit that collectively on behalf of the church. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think we're struggling with that to be seen as a church of hospitality. And I pray for new hope that that would just, that this message, this story, this visual image would inflame our hearts, God that you would give us courage as we kind of launch into this new season of ministry, coming together as two churches into one, and we begin to mark out the mission that you have for us, that we would be known as people of hospitality. Because we follow the one who is the life-giving host, that we would be known as people that move towards strangers and move towards our enemies, people that see the world differently, and invite them to sit down at the table of God's goodness to experience your grace. God, help us. We need help. Uh, we need to be creative. We need to be more courageous in this, God. But may that mark our lives and mark our church for your glory. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.